I have an affinity for reptiles, which we don't need to get completely into. Um, <laughs> it's actually not as weird as you would think. Hello and welcome everyone. This is the Integrated Care Podcast. I'm Dr. Naftali Serrano. It is a pleasure to have you with us again this month uh, for another great topic here and a great crew to uh, share that topic with you. As we do every month, we give you a little bit of an introduction to who we are and where we are because we are spread across the country, as is representative of our association, the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. We've got folks all over doing great work in integrated care um, in all sorts of different settings. We hope that this podcast encourages you, challenges you, helps you um, feel inspired to continue your work each day, and maybe even gives you a few new tips, tricks, or pieces of research that you can take and apply to your daily life. So we're glad to have you here. So let's uh, do our team introductions, including a very special introduction this month because we have uh, a new podcast crew member here uh, to spice it up for us. So uh, we'll, do, we'll, we'll save that one for last, though, uh, just to have a little bit of extended drum roll. We'll start with our uh, oldies but goodies. Grace, why don't you say hello to the folks out there? Hello, everyone. This is Grace Wilson from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, where I am the behavioral medicine faculty at a small family medicine residency program. Uh, and I uh, tasked myself really <laughs> with the job of coming up with a question for us. So we're not just talking about the weather during these introductions every month. Even though I do and, like talking about the weather. It's just kind of know, a cool thing, I given just, that we're in different places. I wanted to try to be a little less redundant. Uh, you could actually, you can still answer this question about the weather if you want. Um, so our question for the month is, if you were writing your autobiography, what would the title be? And it can't just be your name. So I don't know if I should go ahead and answer for myself. Yeah, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm, I'm curious well, about it. I, I, I thought about this a lot, and I think that I would use a phrase that I say to my husband a lot of times. We look at each other and we ask, whose life is this? <laughs> uh, because there are so many things that have happened to us that I never expected, never anticipated, chief among them probably the triplets that we yeah. have that turned two and a half. Um, and so a lot of times... The dogs are barking, the kids are screaming, the four-year-old's running around. I'm trying to, um, we're both trying to do some work. He's answering emails. We've got to figure out what we're going to eat. And we look at each other and say, whose life is this? <laughs> so I think that that would be the title of my autobiography. That's awesome. That's great. That's great. All right. Well, uh, top that, Jeffrey Ring. Uh, that's a lot of kids and dogs. I don't know if I can top that. Um, Jeffrey Ring from Los Angeles, a health psychologist and a, a consultant at Health Management Associates, um, and very happy to be with everybody today. Um, I, I've been thinking about this question, and um, you know, I think it's something about like unfinished. There's just so much that um, that I still have and want to do in my life and professional life and political action life, um, and in particular, the issues about social justice and health equity. Um, I so, so wish that um, there was greater advancement than there is uh, today. I'm indeed uh, thrilled with the advancement of the kind of role and presence of um, integrated behavioral health. That part is really um, kind of extraordinarily fantastic and something to be very proud of. Uh, but when I um, when I go into the, the data about health disparity and health inequity, um, uh, and when I travel across the land, and when I just read the news, um, there is so much unfinished. 
Cool, cool. You can always count on Jeffrey for a very uh, thoughtful answer. Mm-hmm. So that that makes a lot of sense as far as an autobiographical title for you, for sure, my friend. All right, so we may have Deepu George on with us later today. He likes to make cameo appearances. I'm sure my team is not happy that I'm missing from the action, but I needed to find my moment of zen and connection. He comes, <laughs> he comes and goes as he pleases. He's a uh, busy man. Yeah, he's a busy man. He's a busy man. He's he's actually in clinic this morning, uh, uh, working. So he'll he'll he may join us. But um, and Amber Gordon, who's another uh, member of our crew, is also a busy young lady. Um, and she is uh, busy in clinic this morning as well. So uh, she won't be able to join us, although she helped uh, with the creation of the podcast today. So thank you, Amber, for your continued work with us on that. We have a podcast crew member to introduce to you today. Many of you know her already. If you're a member of CFHA, you've seen her at conferences, you've seen her posts on listservs, you've seen her in presentations and webinars and things like that. Um, her name is Bridget Beachy, and Bridget, why don't you let people know who you are and where you are? Yeah, so uh, I'm a licensed psychologist by trade, and I work in Yakima, Washington, which is not Seattle, um, but that's okay if that's how you remember it. Um, <laughs> Isn't all of Washington Seattle? Yeah, you know, the entire state, uh, the six different climates that you go across, it's all Seattle. <laughs> You know, I say that, but I grew up in Ohio and I thought that about Washington. So I'm not being judgmental about that. Um, (laughs) And I work as a behavioral health consultant uh, at an FQHC, Community Health of Central Washington. I'm the director of behavioral health there where I lead a crew of, I think there's up to about 14 of us. Um, Half of them are are with our um, pre-doc and postdoctoral fellowship. Uh, So about I think eight or nine people report to me, which is cool as we just keep expanding uh, more BHCs. Uh, And then I act as a primary supervisor for that pre-doc and post-doc and also am on uh, faculty for our family medicine residency. And on the side for the fun, uh, do Beachy Bauman Consulting, consulting with individuals, organizations on uh, all things integrated care. Very cool. And your autobiographical topic, or title, sorry. So it was going to be uh, the queen of dragons, um, but that's all, all in fun. You, guys will well, well, you, you, you have to explain to the audience the inside joke there. Yeah. So um, I have a bearded dragon as my, as my kid, <laughs> so to speak. A uh, very loved bearded dragon. I have an affinity for reptiles which we don't need to get completely into. Um, <laughs> it's actually not as weird as you would think. I'm just super allergic to uh, cats and dogs and anything with fur. And I love animals. And growing up, lizards were the only thing that I could be around. So then it just has obviously stuck. Um, and so I have an affinity for for reptiles. But in all seriousness, um, the real title I was thinking was Ripple Effect, uh, because you just never know what kind of effect you can have on another person's life or society, or uh, you, you don't know what is going to ripple out to what. And I, I think that that's the exciting thing about waking up every day. That's awesome. That's awesome. That's a, uh, I, I, um, I, I don't, I can't top those, any of those uh, autobiographical titles. Um, 
So I'll do a quick intro of myself. Uh, I'm the executive director of the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. Uh, what that means is my job is to um, do anything possible to empower our members in their work, to inspire, to educate, to provide opportunities and forums for people to expand their own careers and um, uh, just do great things for healthcare in the United States. So it's a really fun job, and this is probably one of the funnest parts of my job, actually, is to meet with these wonderful folks here and to talk about things that are really important to us. Now, so here's my title, and uh, for those for people who know me well, I'm kind of an open book. You know, what you see is what you get. So this title kind of reflects that, um, and I'm just going to uh, break the rule that I just asked Bridget not to break today. Uh, re related to language because I couldn't fix the title in any other way. And so my title would be, it's a contained shit show because that's what it feels like to be me most of the time. And I, I think it's important for uh, <laughs> us to uh, be honest about like, you know, life is hard and there are challenges and some of us look like we have it together, <laughs> but you know, we, we have it kind of mostly together there's a lot of stuff out that's uh, part of you know life that's not all together so i appreciate people seeing me for who i am versus who they think i am so that that'd be my title all right so a uh, couple of quick uh promo items here for you to be aware of as always our podcast is sponsored by uw health uh, university of wisconsin health services is uh, making a big push into integrated care for jobs look at their site, careers.uwhealth.org. That's careers.uwhealth.org. And of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't tell you that conference registration is open for our conference in Denver, Colorado, October 17th through the 19th this year. It is an awesome conference to be at if you want to be energized, inspired, and at the end, a little bit exhausted by how awesome it was. Um, so go to integratedcareconference.com. That's integratedcareconference.com. You can check out registration, some of the content that we have up already, etc. And as always, for our own podcast here, follow us on integratedcarenews.com. All the episodes there. And in fact, Bridget Beachy and her husband and partner in crime, David Bauman, on integratedcarenews.com have a bunch of their videos. So practical videos like uh, working with patients with chronic pain, for example. Uh, are on that site as well on, the, on our video channel. Those are all the things to keep you up to date. We're going to launch right into our discussion today after this break. So here's the situation. You're a clinic trying to implement what should be a simple screening process for depression, and you're just not getting results. And you're trying to get your primary care providers working together with your mental health professionals, but the two sides just aren't jiving. Meanwhile, everyone agrees that the need is great and something needs to be done. Well, that's where CFHA's Technical Assistance Services come in. We work with projects large and small from one-hour consultations to 1,000 hours and help you implement integrated care pathways that are evidence-based and grounded in practical know-how. Our stable of consultants are here to help. Interested? Then simply go to cfha.net slash technical assistance or email us at info at cfha.net. Join the growing list of organizations who have benefited from the best guidance for integrated care around. That's cfha.net slash technical assistance or email us at info at cfha.net. 
All right, and we're back. Today, our focus is going to be on the relational context in integrated care. So we're going to be talking about things related to particularly the patient's family context. So if you're a primary care provider, resident, um, just really thinking through, you know, the challenges of doing really good family-centered work. If you're a behavioral health professional, uh, the challenges of working with multiple family members, bringing context into work, even when you're working with just a, an individual family member. So really great topic. But before we do that, uh, Jeffrey's got some uh, research article that he thought would be a good uh, sort of grounding article for us to consider related to the relational context. So Jeffrey, uh, tell us a little bit about what you uh, read. Yeah, thank you, Neftali. This is an article uh, about adverse childhood experiences. It's a, it's a little bit older. It's from May 1998, the American Journal of Preventive Medicine. But so relevant and important, I think, to the conversation we're going to have here uh, together today. The title is The Relationship of Childhood Abuse and Household Dysfunction uh, to Many of the Leading Causes of Death in Adults. So this is another in um, Dr. Uh, Vincent um, Ferlitti's um, ACEs study research and really shines a bright light on how troubled family environments um, so connect to health status um, over the entire lifespan. And as you'll see when we get to the end of this mini um, presentation or conversation, uh, it comes back again to the importance of somebody in the clinic somebody paying attention to the psychosocial context in which people are, are living their lives or have, have grown up and developed. So um, what they did was they um, sent out a whole lot of um, uh, questionnaires to HMO members and they received 9,500 back. And, and the ACEs questionnaire in particular um, looks at um, psychological, physical, um, sexual abuse, uh, violence against the mother in their household, Maybe they were living in a household where other members were abusing drugs, were mentally ill, or suicidal. And after they received these back, they started to look at the health status of the, of the folks. And they found that um, over half of these um, 9,500 respondents had uh, one ACE, and about 25% had two or more ACEs in their lives. And um, one ACE is already significant um, in, in, in growing up. Um, and they found what you would expect, a graded relationship to adult um, risk uh, behaviors and um, health status. If folks have four or more ACEs, um, they were at a much higher risk for their own alcoholism, their own uh, drug abuse, their own depression, their own uh, suicidality, their own smoking, their own self-poor ratings of health. They were at risk for more sexual partners, STDs, and um, more sort of um, obesity and, um, and, and sort of those kinds of body habitus challenges. So um, once again, I just want to um, really kiss Dr. Ferlitti on the forehead, thank him and his team for this really important reminder about um, the whole picture, the whole person, the whole context, and that our bodies know everything. Our bodies know everything that's going on in the psychological environment and all of that takes a toll and it's a toll that's deep and it's uh, it's um, durable i actually met dr Fletty last week oh really hey cool. yeah, yeah. what context was that it's um 
Pacific Northwest University had an opioid summit and mm-hmm. he was the keynote speaker. Um, I don't know, Neftali, what what year was that, 2014 or 2015 when he came to CFHA for the keynote? I think it was one of those years, yeah. Yeah, it was very similar to that, but it was it was awesome. I actually got to uh, go up on stage and meet him, shake his hand and um, ask him a question. Uh, it was crazy. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, you know, so uh, the the article that Jeffrey references obviously is the initial article around the ACEs study. And since then, there have been replications of that study um, that have found the exact same thing. And I think what what is important to note about that is is the sample uh, that this wasn't, you know, sort of underserved inner city America that, you know, people often relate with um, the importance of uh, social determinants and relational context, et cetera. This was just a sort of middle class standard HMO population in California. So um it, it really shows the importance of the topic of the day, which is, hey, relational context matters. And it matters not just for mental health, it matters for physical health, which is why this is an integrated care issue. Um, and so where I want to start our conversation today, and, and Grace, I want to uh, ask you to, to kick us off here, uh, working in family medicine, um, is where the struggles are with both involving family specifically in care, uh, but also involving family context. So in other words, there's the challenge of involving a family unit. And then there's also the, the struggle in, in care provision of just involving the family context, even if you're working with an individual. So what are, what are some of those uh, struggles and challenges that we've all felt and that many of our listeners feel? Yeah, there's a quote that I share with my residents um, when we're talking about context and the importance of family context. And um, we talk about context as an opportunity for our intervention. So when we add in all of these different elements about social context and family relationships and expand our view of health, it gives us so many more opportunities for intervention. But with the expansion of those opportunities, so does the potential for lack of clarity. Um, so if your patient who comes in with, a, you know, just a upper respiratory infection, if that's all you need to treat, then that makes a pretty clear path to treatment. But if we're saying, hey, there's all this other context going on, you know, just because your patient's reason for visits says they have, you know, a cold doesn't mean that's the only thing going on in their life or the only thing that you can treat. It also, the possibilities can sometimes be a little overwhelming. And then when we multiply that by the number of family members in the room and the relationships that are present there, then it can get really complicated really fast. And so that's one of the pieces in addition to, you know, questions about ethics and confidentiality and um, just the complication of, you know, we work in a system that gives us about 10 to 15 minutes for these medical visits, uh, you know, in the standard way. And the physicians especially are thinking about health maintenance and, you know, medication refills and paperwork and all of these other things while staying on top of the services they're providing, not even mention trying to build a good, strong relationship with the patient. And so it just makes things complicated. And it's simpler sometimes to just take the problem in front of you and treat the problem in front of you. But we lose out on so many possibilities and so many opportunities. And truly, just a little tidbit that I tell our residents, um, and I tell them 
this sounds so simple, but I find myself doing it. When you walk in a room and there's more than one person in there, stop and introduce yourself and find out what the relationship of that person is to the patient. And they kind of, they usually look at me like, yeah, duh. But it's not, yeah, duh, because a lot of times we're like, hi, and we just have our tunnel vision on and we don't even find out, you know, who is this person that's in the room here? And so I honestly, if we could start making that one change and just always involve the family members or support people. And I want to put a, a, a little tidbit here that we are defining family in the way that the patient defines their family. And so it might not be a blood relative. Um, it may not be someone who is, you know, a typical family member, but whoever their support person is and whoever is that um, close person for them. So if we could just start by introducing the person, finding out what the relationship is and involving them in the conversation, that would be a huge step forward, as simple as it sounds. Yeah, absolutely. And I can't agree more with, I think, the main challenge, which is complexity, right? And I think there's a feeling that complexity equals um, harder and also means um, I need, I'm going to need more time to get the job done. Uh, so one of the things I do with, with trainees, and this is across a lot of aspects of patient complexity, uh, but it's inclusive of the relational context in particular, is I remind trainees that actually context is a faster pathway to where you really want to get to with the patient. Um, if you want to be stuck in um, no change land with a patient, <laughs> then ignore their context because you will you will just focus in on a symptom. You will try to reduce that symptom with a strategy and it will not work. And you will have repeated visits of the same uh, fashion. And here's the thing, that context is there whether you ask about it or not. Right, right. The patients yeah. may or may not physically have their family members in the exam room with them, but those relationships are there. That system is there. We carry it around with us everywhere we go. So that's, right. I, that's something I tell my residents too. You can pretend it's not there, but that doesn't mean that it's not affecting your care. And to yeah. not ask is more unethical. If yeah, absolutely. What we know about what we do know I think to not ask about it, not necessarily specifically ACEs, but to not have that your ears open to it is um, not quality care at the at minimum. Right. So, you know, there are obvious challenges with this. And I think from a training standpoint, I've often challenged myself to help move trainees, whether it's residents or whether it's uh, behavioral health trainees to understand some of the skills they need to filter information uh, while they're in the room, because I think that's really the main challenge. You know, it, it really doesn't make sense to say, well, if I have more information, I'm going to have a, a less of a chance of making a good intervention or working effectively. That doesn't make any sense. That equation doesn't make sense. And it's certainly true that sometimes time is a factor in that, but I, I really challenge trainees in particular to think through and say, don't think of time as your enemy. Think of your thinking and how you are involving um, knowledge about the patient's relationship with their, with their spouse, knowledge about their relationship with their children and the dynamics there. Uh, think about how you're filtering that information 
in line with the the key motivation of that patient in line with what's uh what what the patient is really trying to achieve as far as health status etc and that information will do nothing but help you to uh, align with the patient first of all and also uh, come up with a collaborative way of working on their health that ultimately um, I've found you can do something pretty effective in a uh, 15, 20 minute visit. Frankly, I've seen providers who are really good at this and uh, know their patients very well and use the family context as a leverage point for diabetes management, for asthma care, for whatever issues they're working with their, with their patients. So one thing that's helped me sort of conceptualize this, and I, I want to ask you about, Bridget, because you're sort of the, uh, you know, one of the champions of this approach. So one of the tools that's out there, at least for behavioral health providers, but you also use this with medical providers, which is really fascinating to me, and I want to hear about how you do this, right? So you help people uh, attend to context um, using this love, work, play, and then people have added on health, and spirituality sometimes to that too. So that framework that comes from fact, how do you teach folks? And if you could think about the family lens in particular, how do you teach folks to um, sort of interview in an effective manner and filter this information in a way that, that, that works, especially when you're, when you're dealing with a family? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a work in a work in progress. Um, We haven't figured out you know, everything that we, of course, want to figure out, but we do start with um, the contextual interview, which is love, work, play, health behaviors, and the three T's, time, trigger, trajectory. And so the, the love situation, um, it does stem from uh, Patty Robinson, Kirk Strassel, um, and uh, Thomas Gustafson and Deb Gold's work. Uh, they've written a couple books on it um, with working in primary care. And so it, it's a great framework, right? Love, work, play. And when we teach it to residents, we try to get a little bit very specific uh, because for love, you know, well, what does it include? Is that's your relationship? Is that your kids? Who all is involved? How many questions do you ask? What rabbit holes do you go down or not? So the format that we've created is the very first question is tell me your living situation, who all is in the home. So you literally say it like that. And then from there, we explain to the residents that you're building a story and you're trying to picture what is it like when this patient wakes up in the morning you're a detective and you're trying to fill in, can you imagine what it's like to be this person to go through their day? So uh, the living situation and then the next is the relationship status. Uh, and so if they're married, you want to know for how long. Um, we want to know, is this supportive? And there's not a right or wrong answer for how many follow-ups. And this is where it gets hard in the beginning because you don't know how much into the weeds. And in the very, very beginning, you might not know. But after reps, we say, you know, get yourself 30, 40, 50, 60 reps, you'll start to be able to hear what's important and kind of know what to kind of get stuck on or, or to, to move on. And then the next question is what family members are, are important to you. And just like you all said um, uh, uh, about the, it's, it's what people say is their family. So sometimes they'll say, well, I have a really good friend. Or sometimes when you ask about friends, they'll tell you family, but I do actually ask separately, I ask family and friends just in case of how they conceptualize it. And then I do ask about spirituality because I'm looking that at that as a connection, um, whether it's with a higher power or with a community. So it's still in that, to me, in that love category. And then the last one is what they do for, for fun or hobbies. 
And some people are like, I, why would that be? Why are you going to ask about that? But, you know, I want to know what's important to somebody. I want to know what makes somebody tick. And so it goes in that order every single time. Living situation, relationship, family, friends, spirituality, hobbies. And then income is the work. We say love, work, play. But sometimes I I put the, uh, the play up with um, a little bit more with the love section. Uh, that's just a personal preference. And so you're building this story of what is it like for that person to be in their in their life every day and then diet, exercise, sleep, and then um, your substances. So the, 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 the caffeine, nicotine, alcohol, marijuana, and illicit drugs. And most of the time when you get through the love section that, and this will go to you guys, um, you kind of almost know what's going to come next with the work, the play, and uh, diet, exercise, sleep, and substances. Almost always, you'll get patterns. So with the medical residents specifically, I say get. it's about getting reps. It's about getting used to asking these questions and uh, that you're building a story. It's not a checklist that you're just, I mean, it looks like a checklist, but uh, it's way more than that. And to give themselves time and patience to hear patterns. Because in the beginning, they're just asking questions. But there are our folks, we do role plays in the beginning. Um, group role plays, and then they come into our clinic uh, and all new patients, they do a contextual interview with me. Like I always be sitting there, they do the whole thing. And then at the end, they'll turn and say, you know, Dr. Beachy, do you have any other questions? And then that's when I'm normally able to kind of like make the contextual interview and intervention. And they're always like, oh my gosh, how did you do that? And so then we walk them through that process. So it's, um, it's, it takes, I'd say three, all three years of residency, but our third years can do a hell of a, a contextual interview. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. So uh, I see you nodding, Grace. Um, I'm just curious in your in your iteration of training, particularly of residents, uh, how this meshes, how this these concepts mesh with what you you end up doing to try to teach these interviewing skills that help people really again, because I think the challenge is more of a mental challenge of like, man, this is a mm, load of information. How do I sift through all this. I love the way Bridget talked about that idea of reps because I think that's that resonates with me. I have so many reps with this that when I talk to a person about love in their life, yeah, I, I seem to be able to filter that information effectively and pretty efficiently, I think, with a patient. Is that mesh with your sort of your understanding of sort of resident development and, and behavioral health training as well? Yes, I definitely think so. You know, we just like the context, it, at least that it brings complexity. And I think it's really helpful to have a framework to give some structure to that. So they feel like they have a path. And I say they, I mean, we too, we feel like we have a path for making. I sense. use it myself. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I love that contextual interview. And it's not one that I've used a lot. A lot of times I kind of say, it's similar to you. Assessment can be intervention we use a lot of times a biopsychosocial spiritual framework. So asking about questions in each of those areas and understanding that it's a recursive process. And when we say, and I, you can't see listeners, but I'm putting air quotes when we yeah, say physical quotes, health yeah. versus mental <laughs> health versus relationship health versus spiritual health, that truly those are all interconnected. Then that's the language that I use with patients too. I say, we work as a team here and we want to treat not just the, your problem list or your medications, but your whole self. And we see your physical health, mental health, relationship health, and spiritual health is all really closely connected. And so we want to provide support around all of those areas. And here, too, is a place where I try to engage the family members um, and talk about the fact that 
you know, one person's health stuff, it may be that your wife is the one with diabetes, but then that affects your whole family. That affects, uh, you know, everyone's perception and understanding um, and your family affects your diabetes so that truly it's a systemic, it goes both ways kind of process. Yeah, absolutely. I have a question about, um, you know, what happened to some of these other tools that have all, um, been sort of standard in the past in family medicine? Are, are people still using um, Ecomaps? Are people still using um, genograms? Um, I, you know, I wonder about kind of the relative, you know, value of those, um, you know, versus a contextual interview um, and also kind of the, the time involved and the, the degree of focus. And then my second question um, for you, Bridget, more specifically is, um, in the assessment that you do, at some point, are there questions that um, focus more specifically on issues of power or powerlessness, of oppression or the experience of violence? Or as um, the authors I interviewed for our podcast a couple shows ago talked about the imperative for actually assessing um, for experiences of racism, um, maybe sexism, heterosexism, and others as part of the, uh, getting to know somebody in the full context of their life. Grace, did you want to take the first the first question. Yeah, I, I was laughing I feel a little like, bit. I feel like this is a, a NPR, NPR interview that uh, Jeffrey's uh, engaging in. So <laughs> it's such a great awesome. question. Uh, I yeah, I was laughing because again, you can't see it, but Jeffrey's asking about ecomaps and genograms, and I'm nodding yes, and Bridget's shaking her head no. <laughs> so I think you know, there's so many different ways to do this, yeah, there and are. I. I I teach our residents both of those tools, genograms and ecomaps. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's fine. I think a lot of times they get used, um, you know, like anything, there's a tool that is an appropriate time and place. And yes, sometimes um, the time constraint is a limit, but other, a lot of times where they get used for us are with our hospital patients. So people who have families coming um, or when there's, definitely very stressful end of life decision making going on. Um, and then with patients who are vulnerable. So a lot of times our hospital patients are going to be discharged out into, you know, who knows what kind of situation that there are difficult, um, you know, varying levels of family support or very level, varying levels of uh, social resources um, and just financial and occupational resources that they have. And so we find that that eco map is a really helpful way. And like, you know, all assessment can be intervention. And we use that intervention too of highlighting for the patient where might be the gaps in their support and how can we draw from the strengths and resources they you have. So we still use both of those tools. Um, but I hear that different places, they may be used, you know, to different extent at different times, because it, it is finding the right tool for the right time for the right patient. Yeah, I mean, I think that at this point, the chances that any of us are going to find something brand new <laughs> yeah. as humans. So I don't think that the contextual interview, I, I guess we'd have to ask Patty Kirk and whoever helped them create the original contextual interview. Uh, the love work play, I, you know, you're sharing an act literature talks about that. They're basically recycling, you know, and taking it from a functional contextual perspective of whatever works, works. So I, I, I espouse all of that. Um, that being said, the reason why I settle so much more on the contextual interview with teaching family medicine residencies is because of the, <clears throat> the structure and the expediency of it. And so it takes the reps in order to make it useful. Um, I believe Although, uh, man, that's for a whole other thing. I did teach in a, a research study just recently, folks, how to, I took 45 minutes and I taught them a contextual interview and we put them in a room with a standardized patient 
and there was about 60 of them. And half of it was through Telesim, half of it was live. These people in seven, eight minutes got all of the contextual uh, interview information. Like now they didn't know what to do with it. And that wasn't the point of the study, but they were able to ascertain who they lived with, their relationship status, how long they've been with that person, the key family members, their work situation, what they did for fun, their diet, exercise, sleep in about eight minutes. And so it's super important to not just get those answers. We got to figure out well, what we're going to do with it. And that's where the reps comes in and the three years of training, blah, 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 blah. But the reason that I have settled on the contextual interview has everything to do with, like I said, the structure and the expediency of it. And with your reps, it actually becomes, um, my, uh, my partner and I uh, say that's an ACE detector. So while you're doing the contextual interview, it looks like super simple. Like you're asking somebody about their relationship and they're asking about their family, but you are assessing their internal context, their external context, and then their, their own relationship with their insight and their awareness with regards to their internal and external context. So in the beginning, it's not going to be that in the beginning we got reps and it's not going to be overly meaningful. And we tell the residents that with full disclosure, but over time you will get to the point where you are three questions into the contextual interview and you got their internal context. How do they see themselves? How, what about, where's the programming? Where are the aces coming through? Uh, Jeff, Jeffrey, you asked about the powerlessness and the oppression. Absolutely. That these questions for me have just been the most expedient way to structure such something that like Neftali was saying could be so big and that, but you got to get your ears tuned in the right way and listen to patterns. Um, and you absolutely are going to be taking into violence, um, where they, their neighborhood that they're living and what their experience with racism. Do I always straight up ask that out loud? No. Um, because remember we have 10 to 15 minutes for the family medicine. And then myself as a BHC, I have 25, to, you know, maybe 30 minutes, maybe 10 minutes, maybe 40 minutes. We don't know. Um, and that's why I don't do the genomes and the eco maps. Not that I don't think that they're useful. I would say as a teaching tool, but with an actual patient um, in a 30 minute, 25 minute um, for me and what I teach, I just, maybe I'm just not good enough at it. Um, I think that I can get to that information sooner, but um that's just a. I was going to say, I wonder if that's a matter of reps too, because I, at this point, I feel like I can really quickly do a ecomap or genogram as a sketch, not as a super complicated layered depth, but you're as not, a, you're not drawing all the squiggles and the hash marks. I and put all some that. squiggles on here. It's not a genogram <laughs> unless it has some relationship lines. You're missing the point. All right. All right. Them. Um, but I'm not going to have, you know, the grandmother's cousin on there. I'm going to have right. the important players to the patient um, for looking at that context and an eco map too I feel like I could do pretty quickly but I think that's about reps it's about finding your style and I think what I would say to our listeners is the point is not the specific tool that you're using the point is how are you engaging this context and how are you engaging the family whether they're in the room or not because the patient in front of you represents a family system. Again, like I said, you can pretend that it's not there, but you're doing the patient a really big disservice. And so how are we asking these questions? How are we expanding out the context of what we're doing? And then the other thing we can do is invite patients to bring a support person or family member with them. Mm -hmm. um, the healthcare system yes. can be so just isolating and demoralizing and talk about an imbalance of power. You know, we bring them into 
our system, into our location, into our office, and take people away from the things and comforts they know. And so empowering them to bring a support person, involve them in their care. And then when that person comes, actually engaging them and talking to them and, you know, um, championing their opinion and the support that they provide to the patient is such a powerful intervention. That sometimes um, it's not always the bringing of a family member, but um, in the work that we're doing in health homes and integrated teams out here, it's actually the team that in a way becomes an extension of the patient and the family. They really are folks that become instrumental in helping um, the, the patients um, navigate the healthcare yeah. system and like, actually grow their own capacity for self-management over time, um, especially it facing the complexity of um, you know, rurality, perhaps, and, and cultural issues, as well as um, the, the complexity of both behavioral and medical um, and psychiatric and social issues. Yeah, I'm going to say a here, here to that, because especially with childless uh, adults with severe persistent mental illness, um, you you have their their family does become uh, peer support folks, uh, their their psychiatrist, their care manager. Um, other peers that they interact with and have developed core friendships with. So it goes back to the, the idea that Grace brought up before, how we're defining family and what Bridget said before, how we're really defining family as what the family, uh, how, how the patient defines family. You're listening to the Integrated Care Podcast, a production of the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association, made possible with support from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Your podcast team includes Neftali Serrano, Deepu George, Amber Gordon, Grace Wilson, Jeffrey Ring, Bridget Beachy, and Kevin Radine, the post-production guy. We thank you for listening and welcome your feedback. Now, back to the show. I, I want to get back. There's so many awesome places to go with this conversation, but I want to highlight a couple of things here uh, for our listeners. One is uh, what what Grace said about uh, just that the structure is not the key piece. The structure is the means to an end. Yeah. The end here is we must get the patient context in order to do good health care. That's the end. Um, and what, what's really cool, and this is borne out uh, actually on our listserv recently around uh, someone posted a question about hiring an LMFT. And I smiled when I saw the question because I knew as soon as I saw the question, I knew what the responses were going to look like. And it was an opportunity to understand a really important thing, and that is that healthcare professionals come from uh, perspectives. We come from histories and traditions, just like our patients do. In a sense, what we're saying is healthcare professionals have context too. And we bring that context. And that's often that context is really, really good. Sometimes it's not good. We all bring our baggage. But, you know, often it's really good. And that context gives us some structure uh, to how we approach things. And so some folks love doing genograms. I loved my genogram training. I don't use it very much in day to day. But I think, uh, uh, Grace, your challenge is a good challenge. Maybe it is about reps, you know? I think that's a really pretty good challenge. And so I, I want to highlight that, that fundamental notion that that's uh, a key piece of the dynamic here and that what we're really encouraging our audience to do here is to really figure out a way to, to not ignore context and particularly the family context, which is obviously so core to, as Jeffrey grounded us in, so core to health outcomes in general. So uh, that, that's that's sort of... Uh, uh, the, the main thing I want to kind of 
uh, uh, point out. You know, the other thing I want to say is just uh, more relative to what you said, Bridget, before about um, sort of how we're all recycling different sort of yeah. ideas where we haven't come up with new stuff. And I, I, I'm glad you voiced that. I, I'm really glad because um, sometimes we think of like, oh, we've got the way to do something or we've figured out the way. And it's like, there's nothing new under the sun to coin a, a nice biblical phrase there. There really isn't. There's just lots of ways to get at um, what is fundamental about good health care. Um, and that's why you see the breadth of integrated care work that goes on from uh, Jeffrey's work uh, with uh, healthcare teams, um, and to the PCBH work that you're doing, Bridget, to the um, uh, work that we're doing in in hospitals and residencies and uh, emergency departments, etc. So uh, it's really if you embrace that breath, but understand the core goals, which is, yes, if, if you do not embrace relational context, you will not align yourself with an individual. You will not get to uh, the key values um, that, that lead them to good health. Uh, well, then if you're able to embrace it, great. If you don't, you're, 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 you're going to be part yeah. of a, a broken system that just doesn't really work really well. So I want our listeners to have a couple of sort of uh, practical take-homes here as well. And I, I wanted to ask a question I think is probably on the minds of particularly a lot of new folks. New so think new trainees, folks that are early on who are going to be overwhelmed by this filtering process. So you've got multiple family members showing up. Uh, the sort of identified patient is the kid. Um and you've got maybe mom, you've got maybe mom and, and she's watching a cousin, the child. Um, how do you sort of just physically manage that situation in primary care, right? So you've got this issue, you know, because I, I think that's part of what overwhelms people. It's just the practical aspect of a lot of bodies, particularly when you have a lot of young little bodies, so what, what's your take home with regard to managing just the bodies in a physical space like that? How old's the kid? Yeah, let's say it's an eight-year-old. I know what I would want to do, but you guys go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm curious. Oh, man. All right. Um, so with an eight-year-old, uh, I'm going to want to do the contextual interview because uh, I have, you know, I'm going to do it every single time. Um, and actually, Neftal, I did want to uh, say that we're all on the same team here with regards to understanding, I think that, you know, LMFT or PsyD or PhD or whatever you are, that we need to make it as imperative to ask about the family in the context as it is to, to draw labs, as it is to get vitals. Um, and that it, that's not a feel good thing. I mean, it is also a feel good thing, uh, but it's a science thing. Everything that we know about the ACEs study, everything that we know um, from the body of literature shows that we have to ask that. And that's just as imperative to the same way we wouldn't not take somebody's lab is the same way we should not be asked like to not ask about family in context. Um, but back to the eight year old. So what I would do if I got into the room is um, I would position my chair because we have a swivel chair that the PCPs use. So that's what I'd be going in on in the exam room. And I'm going to introduce myself first to the patient, the eight year old. And then I move to the adult and ask who this is. I don't make any assumptions. I've learned that. And who are you? Sometimes they laugh and say, I'm the mom. And okay, 
okay, you know, I got to ask everybody. And then I go to the ancillary members uh, that are there. So if there's a kid playing on the floor, I'd say, and who is this? So I find out, um, Grace, the way you had said, um, I find out everybody in the room and the relationship to the patient. I do not stop if somebody just says this is uh, mom and dad. I actually say biologically mom and dad. Uh, so uh, because a lot of times it's an aunt, a lot of times it's a grandparent and they call mom or it's a stepdad. Um, and then I actually will um, move to the child and I ask, you know, that's why I asked how old because at eight they can answer who they live with. And so um, I'll say, I'll do my little introduction and say to the mom, I'm going to be asking the eight-year-old a lot of questions. Uh, you can help out. But I turn my entire body to the eight-year-old, uh, ask who they live with, and then I'll check back in with mom. And so they'll say who it is, check back in with mom. And then I'll say, um, so, you know, eight-year-old, I might still ask, are there kids dating at school? Sometimes they laugh and sometimes they say, no, I have a boyfriend or girlfriend. You say, okay, answer that. And then I say, you know, who do you, who do you get along with in your family? Who do you like to spend time with? They answer it. And then any other questions I turn to mom. So I'd go through the whole contextual interview with the eight-year-old as the identified patient, playing off of mom, turning my chair. If the parent tries to over talk too much, I will turn, I will physically say to the parent, I'll let them know that I really want to hear from whatever his name is or her name is. Um, and that I will, you know, uh, uh, at the end we can ask some more questions. So that's just what I do in the room. And if some of the cousin and all that are acting wild, um, I normally won't do too much other than I'll give them crayons and we have paper and crayons and I'll be nice to them and get on the floor and say, okay, here, you can play here while I ask some questions. So that's what I do. I'm curious to see what you guys yeah. do. Well, no, I, I love the detail there because those details about body positioning and how you deal with interruptions uh, from the parent, that's what I'm talking about. That level of, there's a lot of trainees out there who just wonder, how do I deal with that? So that's great. Grace, mm -hmm. um, I know you've got to go here real quick. We're at the end of our podcast here, but um, what's, what's your take home for our listeners relative to just managing all these bodies in a room? I, the same thing, involve as many of them as you can. I think when kids are engaged, they're a little less bored and then they make a little less trouble. Um, but the other thing that it's still available, uh, last time I checked on the CFHA website, but there was a really good webinar that was done a few years ago called Taming Wild Families in the Exam Room. Um, and it's a great thing to listen to and learn from. Um, but one of the things they recommend is if there are behavioral problems happening in the exam room, that's a good observational uh, opportunity for you. And so encourage parents, just do whatever you would do at home when this is happening. Uh, and so engage the family member as a partner with you um, for the discipline or the management. And then if it's still out of control, then that tells you something important as well. So everything is data. Everything is assessment. I like it. Mm hmm. Yeah, so that would be a piece. And then, of course, just like Bridget said, engaging the kid, uh, even as little as they can be, it's such a great way to build their health literacy, to empower their engagement around their own health care. Um, and then it's just this constant tension between the patient and the family, uh, not tension in a bad way, but just like playing back and forth between these dynamics and not ignoring anyone in the room. And I would add, you get so much information just by observing the interactions yes. between the family members, between the child. You see attachment information, 
you see skills, uh, what the parenting skills are. Uh, You get a sense of how safe the child feels in that context, how confident they feel and present. You get developmental information based on uh, what uh, skills the child is presenting with. Just observing alone that piece gives you tons of information, which, again, helps you come up with interventions and and uh, an angle to work with that patient and family that you would not have otherwise. And I mean, that's so, all. I think that takes reps, you know, to get yeah. to. Yeah. I, I think that's what is scary for new trainees is because when they walk in the room, especially if they're with somebody who's done this before, they walk into the room and we get all this information. We come out and they're like, how did you get that? But you got to reassure them that it might be confusing. It might be overwhelming. It might feel hazy, but that's just normal that's that's extremely extremely normal and that it becomes clear and clear as you get more and more reps absolutely so maybe that's the theme of the show today um so we are at the end of our regular show but as usual we have a special segment for you so we're going to go to our special segment and not surprisingly it is a segment on families and in particular competency evaluation with family interviewing so so a tool that dan felix and colleagues have come up with to help uh, folks rate themselves or be rated with regard to how they interview families. So uh, take a listen here as our good friend Deepu George speaks with Dan Felix. Good afternoon, good morning, or good evening to our listeners. Good afternoon to both of you gentlemen who are joining me via Zoom today for this exciting conversation. I'm excited to speak with Dan Felix and Larry Mausch. Dan currently serves as the Director of Behavioral Health at Sioux Falls Family Medicine Residency Program and as an Assistant Professor of Family Medicine at University of South Dakota uh, Sanford School of Medicine. And Larry Mausch, who needs no introduction and whose work has directly impacted thousands of medical educators, students, and residents, is a clinical professor emeritus from the prestigious University of Washington Department of Family Medicine. What we're going to do today is talk about the development and use of the Family Centered Observation Form, or FCOF for short. And Dan, I want to start with you. Uh, I briefly remember you wanting to do this several years ago. I think it was at a behavioral science forum when we had met and he had sort of talked about it. Talk to us about the initial inspiration or the need that you saw and how you and Larry connected to work on this. And and as Dan sort of lands that plane, Larry, I was wondering if you can jump in and tell us a little bit about what excited you about this project as a medical educator and someone who's very experienced in training residents and other kind of learners. Take it away, Dan. That's a great question to start, and I appreciate the opportunity to be here today and talk about this. I remember hanging out with you. I think we were down in Texas, right? And we were yeah. mulling over lots of ideas about how to involve the family more in family medicine, you know, and not just in family medicine, but across specialties, given that the family is such an important part of the patient's lives. And, you know, my background, my training is in family therapy. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and have long um, sought for and recognized the need for more involvement of families. It's not so much that it's uh, a new idea, but more of the application of an old idea. How do we actually improve this? And and so the, the background of the development of the family center observation form is I actually applied for a early career mentorship program that CFHA was sponsoring as part of that application I you know it, it gave you some preferences on who you would want to work with and I 
I think my preference number one was Larry Malk, and my preference number two was Larry Malk, and my preference number three was Larry Malk. <laughs> the reason is, is I, I, I knew and was familiar with and had been using his patient-centered observation form. Right. I knew of the work he had done and, and the knowledge that he had gained throughout the, you know, an incredible career. And so, so I remember even our first meeting, I think we were in Portland, Oregon, and I sat down with him and kind of just presented some ideas of, hey, let's take the incredible work and let's, you know, move it into the realm of a family-centered observation form. Okay. You know, he'll have to tell you about what his initial response to that was, but I, I think he was pretty excited and clearly, you know, we've worked together well since then. But So I credit a lot of the development of this to CFHA, really, you know, lining up interests and abilities um, at that first meeting and through that, throughout that year of mentoring. And it's, de- it's developed a lot more than just that year, of course. Yeah, so it sounds like you have sort of this recognition that family is an inevitable part of everybody's lives, and therefore we should pay central attention to that in healthcare. And your own uh, background as a family systems trainee and a thinker and probably a practitioner sort of really influenced you to think about this. And it sounds like you really gave CFH a lot of options as to who you wanted your mentor to be. Uh, and then you landed the best out of the three options, it looks like, you know. Um, you know I, I honestly can't remember all the details, but, but yeah, my background is yeah, all my clinical hours in mental health therapy were inside of a medical clinic. I come out of a family medicine background, and so I kind of you know, lean that way, but I sure. feel like it's important for any patient who has a family, and I define yeah. that pretty broadly. Pretty broadly, I, I would agree. And so, Larry, so talk to us a little bit about what you saw and how was your sort of launch with uh, Dan and sort of taking a lot of your work in patient-centered observation form and converting that to this uh, template of working with learners. Well, I was very excited to meet Dan um, and have the opportunity to work with him. And it was a very timely uh, connection. After almost 30 years of work in family medicine as a family therapist, as someone trained as a family therapist as well, Mm -hmm. I was very well aware that the foundation of family medicine is really based in systems theory. All the original texts cite the the core systems thinkers. But during during my entire career, I had struggled to figure out a way to to effectively integrate family teaching. And uh, a variety of different efforts sort of uh, fizzled out. The timeliness of the FCOF, in my opinion, is because we're at a new phase of medical education where we now have the responsibility to monitor in a more operationalized and, and a data-driven way to monitor the, the, the growth and the teaching of our residents as they pursue a mastery across all the milestones in each of the disciplines. So we're, the, the emphasis on competency assessment really didn't exist when I started my career like it does today. So in that sense, the PCOF um, and now the FCOF, the Patient-Centered Observation Form and, and the Family-Centered Observation Form, are sort of in step with where we are in medical education. So Dan's idea, I thought, was really timely. The, the challenge of teaching family and family medicine is sort of ironic. The title of the field is family medicine, and yet right. there's a remarkable amount of, of, of individual focus to the exclusion of family perspective that is, uh, right. is, is pervasive. And, 
given the impact that chronic illnesses and uh, caregiving and uh, and palliative care and uh, end of life to you know end of life decision making all involve members of the family and the the impact that the family has on, on ongoing health and well-being, it's inescapable. And not to mention that estimates are between 25 and 35 percent of visits include one or more family members. So this was a, a really uh, great connection with Dan, and I'm, I'm really pleased with how he's taken this forward. You know, and if I can jump in, I, I build on that. I actually was just today reading some research about family medicine residents staffing during clinic with the attending faculty physician, their cases and the research mm-hmm. showed that in only 6% of, of the time do the faculty attending physicians, you know, ask the resident about the patient's family members. And granted, this research was from 1993, but I don't know how much has changed since then because we all like the idea, but the application of it is where the you know, rubber hits the road, so to speak. And it's a little difficult to actually take something ideological and theoretical and put it into daily practice. Yeah, I think that's that's one of the challenges. I don't know which family therapist uh, said this, but uh, I think there was a saying in uh, family therapy theories where you can't kiss a family, right? Like it's, it's such a concept that is so present, but yet so um, abstract. yeah, abstract and it, is, it can really catch it. And, Mm-hmm. So I appreciate you giving us that background. And I think part of this interview, of what I was excited too, was about the possibilities of mentorship and relationships that can develop within the small community within CFHA. So Larry, thank you for being here. And Dan, thank you for uh, spearheading this and like the collaboration that you guys have uh, brought together. So describe the FCO for us. Like what are the various ways that this can be used in and the various settings that you've seen it being applied? Yeah, a, a, a quick summary for any listeners who may not be familiar with what it is. It's a it's a one-page observation form. Um, it's actually two pages, but you only use site A or site B, depending on if the patient's family members are in the room or not. Um, but it's a one-page. It has six um, categories or, I guess, sections with specific skills in each section. So, you know, one would be on treatment planning, another would be on establishing rapport, one's on agenda setting, and then the skills and process and content. Um, It's modeled after uh, Larry's PCOF, but it it is also quite different. Sure. I guess, uh, uh, Larry, I know you were going to jump in and let me give you a question to think through also. I think it's important uh, distinction that you made, form A and form B, and form B if the family is not present. And I think it's important to let the listeners hear a little bit more about family-centeredness even when the family's not in the room. Yeah, this is one of the parts of the design that I'm most excited about because a large proportion of the time, the physical body of the family is not in the room, but their influence and perspective is. Right. And so being able to ask questions that bring their voices in is critical. So it's one thing to say, you know, what is your view of diabetes? And it's another thing to say, you know, what do your, uh, what does your husband or wife think about your diabetes? What does your husband or wife think makes your diabetes worse or better, or your blood pressure or your headaches? Mm-hmm. And, and um, who in your family is most supportive of you managing your diabetes? Those kinds of questions are critical. Um, this form not only 
brings into relief the value if, if there's only one person in the room, the value of doing it, but it actually teaches the user. Um, so like the PCOF, it's, it's specific and focused enough to really guide the user in, uh, in applying these skills, not just assessing if they're used. Right. I also get the sense that the kind of questions that you may ask may illuminate different things for the patient themselves. Yes. It's, that's, I, I think that's, that's definitely true. When you start asking someone to look at the world through the lens of somebody else's eyes, it builds empathy. Right. And perspective. And that is, in my opinion, a therapeutic intervention in and of itself. Right. It's, it's sort of worked into the design of what uh, the learner is doing. Go ahead, Dan. Oh, I was just going to, I think that from a systemic background, there really is the, the healthcare system, mm -hmm. the nurses, the physicians, the whoever else that's treating the patient. And, you know, the patient enters into that system. However, they're already part of a, of a system of people that have a, a lot of influence on that patient's healthcare decisions. Right. So it's really the, dare I use the word collision of two systems when you try, right. when you endeavor to treat a patient in their family context, you know, and you can provide family centered care without ever meeting the patient's family. It's, right. it's, and I think that's a key point, even a, maybe a stepping stone to be able to work with complex families in the room. So right. Yeah. What I get the sense is, as you guys are describing this and I saw the questions, um, whether we like it or not, we are always dealing in systems, but this just sort of makes it more evident and present in the clinical interview, treatment planning, and other areas that often probably just miss this. Yeah, and this form is really designed to be not just an evaluative tool, but more sure. of an observational slash educational tool. You know, there's specific skills right. that, a, that a healthcare provider can can learn about and then gain and practice and become part of the regular skill set that really are designed to empower the healthcare provider to feel more comfortable and to provide better, more, more systemically focused healthcare to the patient. Right. So like a good self-monitoring, self-evaluation kind of uh, progress chart that they can use over mm -hmm. time, right? Uh, I know one of the things, Larry, you just mentioned a second ago was the idea that this sort of uh, helps the patient develop a different worldview, but it also helps the learner mm -hmm. develop an empathetic worldview into mm -hmm. the situations that they walk in. Mm -hmm. What do you think some of the longitudinal effects of this observational tool can be on trainees and learners? Well, um, I think the long-term effect could be to develop an enhanced systemic perspective, sure. uh, more likelihood to regularly think about the patient in the context of their family and even their community, but in this case, particularly their family. When that becomes a habit, it's a hard thing to um, undo. Yeah. And to the degree that this form teaches, I also think it builds in what you might call uh, an, an observation self. Mm -hmm. So the more you're used to the form, after a while, I think it's integrated. You don't actually have to have it in front of you. You start watching yourself after interviews and you get done with the interview and you're more likely to say, geez, do I know anything about the family perspective on this issue? And right. uh, if the answer is no, um, then you're, you're, uh, you're reminded. So I think it's a, I, I a long-term training thing and, and 
Um, I think it's when, when people develop systemic thinking and they apply it clinically, it's self-rewarding. There's an intrinsic reward that comes from knowing that you have a broader connection in an effort to provide good health care than just with a patient. That for some reason, and I can't, uh, find the, I can't find the words to explain it, but it feels right. It feels good. Right. So this sort of develops a mental map that you almost cannot travel without when you enter these patient uh, journey situations in clinic. <laughs> That certainly has been the case for me over my career of 30 years working in family medicine. I can't think of a patient that I have, that's been referred to me or I've consulted on where I haven't asked about the family context to have a better understanding of what's going on and how to help the patient. So since the launch of FCOF, um, Dan, in terms of your experience in developing and sort of seeing it's being used in different settings, has anything surprised you in the way sort of the instrument is being used or any unexpected learnings that you've had? You know, uh, what's surprised me the most actually is maybe displaying a little bit of my bias, but I, I've been surprised by the dual nature of, of the way it's been received. So what mm -hmm. I mean is some people have just loved it and they said, hey, can I use this? I want to start you know, teaching it and showing videotape reviews using this point. There's one side that just loves it. But then I've been surprised by um, a certain number of the physicians I teach or the other, you know, educators I collaborate with that there's just a kind of a lack of desire. It's almost like there's a fear of working with families, fear, the complexity that comes with having to deal with more than one opinion in the room. Right. It's a, it's a leap of faith to go from provider-centered care to patient-centered care because you have to include the patient's input and the patient's shared decision-making. It's an it's a even bigger leap of faith to then include a whole bunch of people, the patient's family and, and their perspectives and their influence on the patient. And there, There's a certain amount of complexity that not always, but get, can come with a family-centered care provision model. Right. Some people maybe who aren't ready for that that, that, that feeling that Larry was talking about, it feels good when you do this the right way. It also feels bad when you do it the wrong way. So a good example is this morning, literally this morning, it, I was in clinic shadowing a physician I teach who is in clinic and she had a really complex biological mm -hmm. and psychosocial history. And, and I, you know, encouraged her to ask about the woman's family, what kind of support she had. And, and the doctor almost told me no, like she didn't want to. And and I said, why? And she's like, I don't want to open up that can of worms. Right. And I think what she was saying was, I don't have the skills to deal with it when I open it up. You know? mm -hmm. And she's a first year resident who hasn't yet been introduced to the family centered care training that, that we offer here. And so that's what surprised me most is I kind of just assumed that everybody wants to do this, that everybody sees the importance of it, that everyone's ready to jump in with both feet. But no, there's a, there's a, there's a learning curve, a growth process that healthcare providers of all professions need to go through to be willing to, to you know, try to manage the complexity that comes with families and the drama of it all. Yeah, yeah. I, I think part of what you're saying is there's a level of readiness that needs to meet the level of skills and perspectives that learners would need to sort of not only use this, um, but also really begin to be part of the conversation with patients and their families. Of course, not all family-centered care is, you know, very complex and emotionally dramatic. Right. 
there can be some very simple doctor visits with one patient that are family centered in nature and that, that aren't emotionally challenging. Um, you know, there certainly is a spectrum, yeah. but we tend to fear the one side of that spectrum and therefore do none of it. Yeah. We avoid everything for the fear of some part of it. I, I would, I'd like to add one point and that is one of the things that I think is, has been fearful to residents that I've encountered over many years is the confusion between family thinking and family therapy. This mm. form does not expect or teach people to be family therapists any more than it teaches people to be heart surgeons. That's right. It, it, it teaches people to think about the family context in the hope that it will help the clinician produce a plan and an approach that is more likely going to provide a successful healthcare effort, create a successful healthcare effort. So there's a big difference between practicing as a family therapist and right. thinking about family values. Um, it's just pretty simple to, to ask the question, what does your wife think about changing the way she cooks to help you manage your blood pressure? Right, right. As an example. Yeah, and I think that's a very important distinction, right? So this is sort of building the mental framework uh, or the perspective to take into patient rooms with you rather than we expect you to do uh, insane systemic interventions to reframe this family struggle. Um, and I think that's a good, good perspective to have as we walk in. In the family systems medicine world, family-centered interviewing is just a part of it. Right. This form is just a part of family-centered interviewing. And it really is changing attitudes, but also developing skills, you know, how to, how to detrangulate when you have families that are trying to get you to take sides and those kind of, you know, actual skills that a physician or other healthcare provider can use. To do that. Perfect. So if our listeners are interested, what is the website that they go to to download the form and get instructions to take this forward in their lives? You know, Larry, his PCOF is um, at the website PCOF.us. Mm -hmm. So we chose just very similar to easy to remember FCOF.us. Perfect. Or you can do www.FCOF.us, but it will take you to an electronic, um, like a, a web training module. Um, and in that module, you'll be able to download the latest version of the Family Center Observation form. I think it's on the second or third page, but it, it's, a, it's a module that can really go into a lot more depth than we can here today to explain the why it's important, the how to use it. There's videos you can watch. There's examples of the form filled out that you can compare to your own. And I think that's the best way to access it. And I'm going to toot Dan's horn here. He designed this entire thing. This, the, the, the website, the training is not my work. It's his. And it's brilliantly done. It's very clever. The graphics are extremely engaging, um, and it's a very uh, friendly, I think, effective uh, design. Wow, and I am sure our listeners are going to log in and start using this in their different settings. One of the things that I wanted to ask your permission to is if it's okay if we can share the PowerPoint that comes with it. Um, and if that's sort of private, we can sort of uh, leave it off and the PowerPoint is the one that you presented uh, at CFHA October 2016. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's fine. Perfect. Yeah, that's I, I, I have to double check, and you know, I mean, it, it's constantly evolving work. I'm not sure that 
there was one time we presented where we had an older version of the form. And okay. so if you, if you want to share the PowerPoint, that's great. And I encourage it, just, you know, refer people to the website to get the latest version of the form. Of the form, absolutely. Well, thank you guys so much for being here on a afternoon and taking about 30 minutes to talk with us. We appreciate the work that you've done, uh, especially to bringing the voice of the family into the healthcare setting. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for having us. All right. Thank you again for joining us today. Thank you to Dan Felix and colleagues for their work with family interviewing. And thank you for uh, listening to another episode of the Integrated Care Podcast. As usual, we have a lead out and uh, Grace is going to take us out. Hey, Deepu chose this reading for us um, and he uh, he wanted it to be a charge for us to look at the strengths and assets of um a group of people and not just their weaknesses and pathology. He said families and family systems are as strong as their strongest bond. And he also reminds us, uh, I think also inspired out of that conversation on the listserv that you mentioned earlier in Nefali that as CFHA, because we are not um, specific to any one guild, uh, that we are strongest in our unity and out of many, we're one. Um, and he, a call, a call for unity for us there. Okay, so here's the, the sit down. You have been told that, even like a chain, you are as weak as your weakest link. This is but half the truth. You are also as strong as your strongest link. To measure you by your smallest deed is to reckon the power of the ocean by the frailty of its foam. To judge you by your failures is to cast blame upon the seasons for their inconsistency. And that is from Khalil Gibran, the prophet. Thank you, Grace, and thank you, Deepu, uh, and thank you all for your hard work out there uh, doing great integrated care across the land. Check back with us next month for the Integrated Care Podcast. I'm Naftali Serrano.